what a ministry you've had in speaking to one another in songs, in hymns, and spiritual songs. The voice of God's people declaring that their sin is nailed to the cross was glorious. Sometimes when I'm up giving announcements, I'm accounting for who's not here and it feels like a, we're missing some of the family. But, wow, you sang in a powerful way. Uh, thank you for feeling that ministry. You might not think your voice needs to be heard. And, you know, individually, I don't know that it does. I don't know if any of ours do. But as the voice of God's people praising him, uh, feel free to cut loose. I, it just... It just doesn't matter what it sounds like, because um, God is pleased as the voice of rushing waters, it sounds like, uh, is to his glory. All right, Haggai chapter 2. The theme is consider your ways. That was specifically the theme of last week's message that Haggai gave. This week we begin... Uh, About three and a half weeks later, a month later than the last sermon, comes this second sermon from Haggai that I read earlier, Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Here's what I want us to consider this morning, a sermon on finding your significance in God's agenda, God's plan. Yes, for his church, but even specifically for your life uh, as part of God's church. I don't know if I need to even ask the question, do you struggle ever with a sense of significance? Because I think if we're honest, as frail humans, we will at some point struggle with the feelings of insignificance. We tend to compare ourselves to others. We see their abilities, their successes. We see their apparent ease of navigating life. We see it and we think that there must be something wrong with us because we're not like that. Maybe as parents, we see other families and we think we should be doing something more or something different. As pastors, we see other churches. We see their budget, their attendance, their staff, and we're tempted to think, what's the use? We'll never do something that great. I have good friends that go to another church in town. Their weekly offering is more than our annual budget. And you, you stop and think, like, Why does it matter what we do in our little place? These are the, the kind of fiery darts that we face, some more than others. Tempts us with this feeling of insignificance. That feeling can lead to nagging discouragement. It can lead us to surrender our resolve to even try anymore. We listen only to criticism from from ourselves at times, from others, from the devil. 
It's a criticism of our looks, of our abilities, of our failures. There's criticism of our efforts at trying to do right and serve, it seems. And then there's criticism if we don't try. There's criticism of our claims of loving God, criticism of our Christian disciplines. Sometimes the devil doesn't even need to be a part of it. We pick it ourselves. We think a good thought. I need to read my Bible, and then it's met with our own bad thought. But what's the use? I'm never consistent in that anyway. For some people, this struggle with insignificance is like a mild headache. You know, a a Tylenol and a good night's sleep, and and you'll be over it. You kind of move through it quickly, and, and by grace, you kind of move on. For others... It's more like living as an insulin-dependent diabetic. Like, things can go wrong in a hurry. Like, you can easily spiral out of control into doubt and despair. So this, this question of significance, we're not just wrestling with some kind of psychobabble and get over it. We're looking at real spiritual warfare. You could label it as being confident or being insecure, and maybe there's a place for labels like that. But the reality is, when our faith is is weak, we're not resting in who we are in Christ, who God sees us to be, and, and we just look around at the comparisons and we don't feel we're good enough. And here's the really odd thing about this feeling of insignificance, of not being good enough, it can be mixed with a feeling of relief. Because once we acknowledge, I'm not good enough, I could never do that, now I can absolve myself from even trying anymore. And while I probably can't honestly say I enjoy the feeling of insignificance, at least I'm not out there trying and only feeling like a failure, so we just don't try. It seems pointless. Well, our text presents to us an alternative to this weight of comparison, to to this constant voice of criticism, and it shows us a people who were discouraged. I want you to see how this matter of significance, this feeling of meaninglessness, insignificance, brought God's people to a very quick halt from the progress that we saw last week. Because the story of chapter 2 begins with discouragement, what we could call a longing for obvious significance. Obvious because they are going to lay their eyes on this temple foundation and start working on it. And it becomes obvious that the significance of this project doesn't measure up to the former one. And that sense of insignificance begins to creep in. Discouragement that leads to that surrender of resolve. What's the use in trying And the people are discouraged. Now that seems odd because just last week we studied 
consider your ways as the message from the prophet. And we saw in verse 12, God's people responded with obedience. They responded in worship. We will fear the Lord. And they responded in a practical display of obedience and worship. It says they worked. They began to build the temple. But if you look at the dates there in the text, you could see at the end of chapter 1, it was the 24th day of the sixth month. Verse 1 of the next chapter begins a month later, the seventh month on the 21st day. Just shy of one month later. And these people are struggling. We've mentioned it already, but in Ezra chapter 3, you could read of the people standing there as they laid the foundation for that temple. That would be 16 years ago from our story. And some were excited. This is great. Progress is being made. And others remembered the old temple. And it, this was not shaping up to be anything like that. And there was chatter and excitement about the joy of the new temple. And there were tears and lamenting about the old temple. And Ezra tells us you could hardly tell what the prevailing sound was. Well, now all these years later, that foundation is there and, and they began to build. They gathered. They were excited. Consider your ways. And they did. And they chose obedience. They chose to prioritize the Lord's work. And it began. Here they stand at that temple foundation. And maybe they've cleared off some of the brush and trees that had grown up around and we saw from chapter one go up in the mountains and get some trees and make the lumber so maybe we've got a little bit of a lumber pile started here stand God's people this remnant of faithful ones they got their work boots on they got their gloves on and their goggles they got their tools and they start building and they, they're looking around thinking this, this isn't looking like much because frankly, we don't have all that gold and silver that characterized the pinnacle of Israel's height of glory under Solomon. We don't have that. This is never going to be as great as Solomon's temple. And standing there looking the part of workers and having begun this project, there's this sinking feeling like, what's the use? This little, little slab of stone in the middle of the mountains of a forsaken country, still under Persian rule, this is never going to be the glory days. So why even bother? This is how discouragement works. It robs us of our joy, of our momentum. You know how it is. You could leave here today and it is well with my soul. It truly is. But by Tuesday, you're thinking, I'm, I'm a wretch. I'm a loser. I lost my temper again. Here I'm two days in and I haven't thought one thought about Sunday's worship. What's the use? And our momentum is just zapped from us. Our joy is gone. That peace is gone. And that's what these people are demonstrating for us. And God recognizes it. 
And so he speaks through his prophet to this people. And look what he says in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? A handful of them, perhaps. But by now, everybody knew the story. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? The prophet gives this message that basically just reads their minds. That's exactly what they thought. Former glory, how do you see it now? It just, it doesn't compare. It says nothing in their eyes. And I want us to note that this matter of comparison is is public enemy number one in battling this feeling of insignificance. We compare ourselves to some other point, to some other place, to some other person, and we think, oh, now that is what we should be. The church can do this. We can say, you know what? Man, the Reformation, now that was some serious Christian living on display. Because we reap the, the best of the best from that era of church history, and we think, oh, that's what we should be... Well, sure, you should be the best of that. But don't be the worst of the Reformation. (laughs) Don't struggle with the things they struggled with. Don't believe some of the nonsense that they were still struggling with and believed. You could point to some other great awakening in American history and think, now that's when the church really got it right. In part. What they focused on was really good and we should learn from that, but don't think that was the golden age of the church, and somehow, if only we could have that, we'd be something. No, if we, if we engage in this comparison battle, we will always lose. Because you will always find something that, on the surface, looks like that must be better, and I'm not that, therefore I'm insignificant. Comparison. What's interesting that even as God asks these questions to kind of probe into their thoughts, he's clear to add in that last question, is it not as nothing in your eyes? From your perspective, from what you can tell God is wanting to do, doesn't this look small, this temple compared to the glory of Solomon's temple? But from God's perspective, he doesn't need the glory of Solomon's temple. Because as we see in the message, he's got a better plan for defining glory than the glitter of gold. So yes, in their eyes, he's not even disputing the fact that this temple doesn't measure up. God agrees with that. But he's challenging their conclusion based on their observation from their eyes. They look, and something doesn't seem right, and immediately they turn inward and despair. God has a better plan. We just can't always see the blueprint. And so from our perspective, it looks like that must be insignificant. How can a church of 60 
be significant in the kingdom of God compared to churches of 6,000. What can they do? Man, the smallest Sunday school class can do that. But our perspective is off. God's going to give his responsibilities to us, his talents from the parable, as he sees fit. And he calls us as stewards to be faithful where he's put us. And the steward servant with the one talent was no less significant than the one who had multiple talents. Both face the great risk of judgment if they are unfaithful and both enter into the joy of their Lord when they are faithful. In our eyes, we may seem insignificant and meaningless, but in God's eyes, we are a part of His plan, His purpose, His kingdom that is unfolding. Think of a scroll as the timeline of humanity, and we've unrolled it as far as 2023. And then we step back, and we can look back on the scroll and see how God was working in all of this. Some of you have studied history, or I know some of the, you know, we had this one history, the mystery of history. It shows all of God's work in history. That's, that's good. We can do that. But we can't unroll the scroll further and see. All we can see is up to the present. And we have to believe that the God who is at work in the past is at work right now. So that, that church of 60 and that insignificant believer struggling with what's the use, they must come face to face with the fact that God is unfolding that plan and he's using us as part of his plan to achieve worldwide glory to his name. Your limited perspective cannot be the final say in the matter. I know what your eyes see. And you might be right. It seems small. It seems insignificant. But your perspective cannot be the final say. You must surrender that too. Lord, I, I don't know exactly what you're doing. But I will gladly yield myself to your plan. And in that, I will find my significance. The old gospel song says it this way. You never know what's coming next when I say that, probably. God's got a bigger thing going on than what these little bitty eyes can see. Anybody know that one? No. My kids, because I make them listen once in a while in the car. What do you want to listen to? It, it's not gospel music, is it? <laughs> yes, I think it will be for the next album and miles down the road. But it's true. God's got a bigger plan in place than my eyes can see. You ever stayed in a hotel and looked out that little peephole? You know, you see this distorted picture, you know, and if anybody happens to be close, it's this big blob of a face with a great big nose, like, coming into your room. You can't see down the hallway either direction. You only get that one little glimpse. Well, if we look through that little peephole and draw conclusions about everything else going on and then despair, that would be foolish. And it was foolish for these people to let the size of the foundation 
of this building that God had said to build, to let that discourage them in the work just because they couldn't see what God was going to do in this place. They didn't know that the Son of God would take on flesh and walk in this building that they were building in that moment and declare the truth about how to meet with God through faith in the Son. They didn't consider that. How could they? So by faith, they have to trust that what they're doing, though it may seem small, though it may seem insignificant, though they may not understand why, they will trust that their significance is found in being faithful in their little corner of the world with whatever God has given them. He's got a bigger thing going on than your little bitty eyes can see. So by faith, we'll take him at his word and we'll throw in all of our resources, all of our time, all of our energy, and we'll do the job. These people faced discouragement. They were longing for obvious significance, significance that could be measured with a tape measure. That's not the only significance to be found. So God sends Haggai with this message of encouragement. Comes in two parts. Number one, an understanding of present significance. The first part of the message is, wait a minute, you're discouraged, the momentum has stalled out, you're thinking, what's the use? Well, here's the use. And he gives them some truth for now. And they do get back on track. Then there's another part of the encouragement that comes in the last couple of verses of our text, and we'll look at that in a moment. First, the present significance. Verse 4, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, and then be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people, declares the Lord. Work. So remember, that's why I wanted us to picture them there, because they, they were excited. Work boots, work gloves, goggles, we're here for the project. But then it all stalls out. And the message they hear is, no, let's crank that back up. Be strong and, and do the work. And here's a motivation that comes. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The encouragement from the prophet came from knowing God's presence. If we're going to be discouraged when tempted to compare ourselves to others and we have this feeling of insignificance, what's the solution? The solution is, remember, God has promised us his presence. I am with you. It'd be like the boss of a big corporation coming to your little cubicle and looking over your shoulder and, and helping you with that drawing or helping you with this marketing plan because he sees it's important. And suddenly you feel like, wait a minute, he, he recognizes the significance of this work going on in this little corner of his corporation. God says, I am with you. 
This is important. The presence of God is there. And this presence is rooted in his faithfulness. He says, I am with you. Why would God say that? Because he had obligated himself. You don't think of God being obligated to do much of anything except be faithful to himself. And he says, I have made a covenant with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. According to or based on that covenant I made with you. And what was the context of that covenant that he made? That reminds us of God's presence. Exodus 2, God heard the cry of his people and he came down, it says, to rescue them. So that reference of coming out of Egypt seems kind of nondescript. When you came out of Egypt. But we know the story. God came down, decimated Egypt, and rescued his people. So when he says, I am with you, he means something by that. He says, look back and see the benefit of me being for you as a people and rest in that. Find hope in that. Find strength for this work at hand, knowing God is with you. But this encouragement also comes not only from knowing God's presence with us, but from knowing God's purpose for us. These commands, be strong, work, fear not, are instructive about God's purpose. Not only is purpose for this people who stood on a flattened mountain and needed to build a building, but for any of God's people that would pick up Haggai and read this prophecy. I see what it meant for that people. What what does that mean for us? Well, I hear be strong and work and fear not. And I realize that God has a purpose for us today. He wants us to demonstrate strength, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God and stand against the devil. Be strong. He wants us to work, to serve, to serve him ultimately by at times serving others, recognizing what kingdom work looks like, making the name of Jesus, the king of this kingdom, known to everybody. Service. And then faith. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't worry about the Samaritans and the others who are trying to hinder this temple building project. I am with you and I have a plan for you. Understanding God's purpose and his presence are the weapons we need to fight against the harsh self-criticism to fight against the feelings of insignificance, to fight against that foolish comparison to others. If you want to win this battle, come back to the text. Instead of comparison, instead of criticism, instead of insignificance, recognize God is with us. And God has a purpose for us. Think of the alternative. 
a Christian life characterized by weakness, apathy, and fear. That's what kept creeping in on these people. Traveled hundreds of miles, lay a foundation, and then weakness, apathy, and fear take over. And the project stalls for 15 years. God stirs them up. And for three and a half weeks, man, they're ready to go. And yet that quickly, everything comes to a halt again. And God identifies these three steps. Be strong, work, and trust. Don't be afraid. War this week against insignificance by remembering God is with you. He says he loves you. He says he is for you in Romans chapter 8. You have his promise of his presence. And then remember God's purpose. I I read in another kind of pursuit and study in Ephesians 2 there, we are his workmanship in Christ, or created in Christ Jesus unto good works. I don't know if anyone in here would think of themselves as a craftsman. Some of you probably are pretty good at some things that you could rightly use that label. But to think that God labels himself as a craftsman working on a specific project, and that project is you. We can have no doubt that God is with us and that he has a clear purpose for our lives. Take up those weapons and war against the feelings of insignificance. But the prophet wasn't done. He had another word of encouragement for these people. Since they're so good at comparing times, the present with the past, the prophet says, In the kindness of God, let me reveal a little bit about the future so that you will find your place on this timeline of God's glory being revealed. So the encouragement part two is a hope in future significance. That somehow everything we do now for the kingdom is significant both in the present, because God is with us and has a purpose for me to do this, but my kingdom work now has future significance as well. So the hope in future significance, it begins in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now remember... This weight on the Lord of hosts is drawing on the name of God, the God of angel armies. Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of armies. It it brings to bear the force with which this will be accomplished. There is absolute certainty 
Because this army of the Lord, this kingdom will advance without the slightest bump of opposition. It's that certain. So the prophet is holding that out there. Who's saying this? The God who has all power to accomplish it. So there's hope just in that, but what is the actual message? That God will receive glory through Christ in the church. That's the message. Now, how do we see that here? God will receive glory. He says, I will fill this house with glory in verse 7. Verse 9, the latter glory of the house will be greater than the former. So we know God's end goal, glory. If you read your Bible, you, you, you focus on the wrong thing. If you think the great end of what God is doing here is he wants to be surrounded in heaven with all these people he saved. That salvation of sinners is the great end of things. We know that can't be true because there will be those cast into the lake of fire. So the great end is not salvation. The great end is glory. Glory. Somehow achieved even in the ruin of Pharaoh, Romans 9 tells us, as much as in the rescue of Israel. Glory's the end. And God tells us that here. Now, we have some work to do to figure out exactly what all contributes to that glory. But don't miss God's agenda. More glory and more glory and ultimately, in a little while, a shaking that will produce a glory from all the earth when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the end goal. Now, that's going to be accomplished through Christ. I think that is here in the prophetic language, a latter glory in the church because he says in that latter glory there is the establishment, the giving of peace, which isn't just calm and everything's okay. This is reconciliation. This is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in New Testament teaching. But here's the hardship. We talked briefly about prophecy in the introduction to this study a couple weeks back. Remember we said prophecy can be challenging because sometimes there's a prophetic fog. We don't have every detail and we're trying to see, well, what does he mean by that? And when does this happen? And the other problem was the language that's used is the language of imminence. Even in our text, it's a classic example. In a little while, it says. We're thinking, well, what, does that mean for these people? Or is it like the latter, oh, when Jesus comes into this temple, that's the latter glory, that's 400 years, but that's a little while in comparison to thousands of years. What does he mean here? Then we have this question of verse 7. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. A right interpretation is the treasures of all nations, but it could also be translated 
the desire of the nations. Think, hark the herald angels sing, come desire of nations, come fix in us thy humble home. That would be a valid translation, even though it is a plural Hebrew word. So it would be this fullness of desire. When we think of this verse alone, the treasure of the nations, the desire of the nations, it has the, it has the, the weight of chosen treasures of the nations. What, what actually is the encouragement here? What is he saying? Let me give you three views. I don't usually just give you the views, but spoiler alert, all of them are going to work, all right? What is this treasure of the nations, and what is the little while and such? Well, view number one, God will shake the nations, and the literal wealth of the nations will provide for the glory of this temple being built. They don't have a lot of gold right now. And so God's saying, don't worry about it, I'll provide. You think it's not glorious, but it'll have some glory. That's not untrue. And I think in the immediate hearing of it, that proved to be true. We can read in Ezra chapter 6 of Darius the king at that point issuing a decree not only to send money, but to provide everything that is needed to complete the building of the temple. Cyrus hadn't fully worked out all the details. Darius takes over and says, here's a blank check. Do whatever you need to do. So people in that day may have felt the immediate fulfillment that God would shake the nations and out would come their gold coins and now we can build our temple. It just doesn't answer all of our questions because it does say a greater glory in that latter day. And and no one argues that though gold was provided that this second temple was as glorious as Solomon's. So partial fulfillment, but we'd like to see more. So there's a second view. Jesus is the desire of nations. Whether they know it or not, he's what they need. We know many reject him, and so it's not like they're clamoring for Jesus. He came to his own and his own received him not. But the reality is, if they need anything, they need a Savior. And so it would fit that Jesus is the desire of nations. As some translations would have it, and as certainly we've, we've sung all our lives in that Christmas theme. We're right to see Jesus in verse 9 as the latter glory of this house. When Jesus came into the temple, one of the accounts, I don't remember if it's Matthew or Luke, he even says something greater than the temple is here. Elsewhere, he would say, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And in both cases, they were missing the point that he's talking about himself. He's more glory than any physical building could ever have. So there is a sense that that is also true, that Jesus is the desire of nations, that he is the greater glory, that in him is a greater opportunity to meet with God. The temple was that place to come and find fellowship with God and commune with him. We do that now, not on a mountain, as Jesus told the woman at the well, not on this mountain or that one or that one, but through Jesus Christ. So yes, greater glory. 
fully displayed, John 1.14 tells us, as Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, displaying the glory of his Father. So there's the literal wealth fulfillment. There's Jesus as the desire of nations. But there's one other view that I think must factor into our understanding. When verse 6 says, God will shake the nations and out of it will come the treasures of the nations that will fill the house with glory so that that glory is greater than any glory before. Our third view is that out of the nations in the final judgment will come God's chosen people, the church, to the praise of his glory and grace, Ephesians 1 tells us. Hebrews 12 actually quotes this text from Haggai of the shaking of the nations and points us to the final day of judgment, the final shaking And what's left when the dust settles, we know from Matthew 26, is that God will separate the unbelievers from the believers. And we know from Revelation that out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation will come God's chosen treasures that will fill his house to the praise of his glory. So I would submit to you that while any one of the views could be true and you could kind of plant your flag and say, I think this is what it means, I would argue for a progressive fulfillment of this prophecy that starts with God can shake the nations and give a little gold for a building. And then God can shake the nations with his presence, sending his own son to live among men and provide a greater glory than a cloud that filled the temple in Moses' day. This would be the Son of God filling that temple. But then we bask in the hope of future significance that we are the chosen treasures that will be to the praise of His glory when He shakes this world in one final judgment. You want to have a sense of significance? Then realize that you are a chosen treasure of God who he will make certain has a place at his feet to worship him forever. He'll shake the nations and you'll be safe in Christ. You'll be secure forever in the presence of his joy. All this is designed to encourage God's people. And while in Haggai's day, they may not have put it all together, they certainly understood a couple of simple lessons, and let me close with these applications. Number one, don't search for significance in shallow comparisons. You might not think you're searching for significance. That's, that's kind of the, the side door to get away from the sermon. You just walk out saying, I don't think I struggle with feelings of insignificance. Maybe not like others, but do you find comparisons creeping in? If so, stop that. Don't search for significance in shallow comparisons. It's a fool's errand. It will never deliver what you think it will. Number two, invest in God's agenda. God is going somewhere in human history. Right now, it happens to be through you, his 
people, his church. He's doing something. And frankly, he's doing something at the church of 6,000 too. So there's no use us saying, oh, we figured it out. You know, God's doing something in the small churches, but those big ones, they're, they're just caught up in programs and stuff. No, he's doing it there too. But just don't let the devil draw you into the comparison game. Recognize that we're all to invest in God's agenda. Work. And don't be afraid. Do it in faith. Number three, rest in the victory that will be fully revealed. It really doesn't matter what your exact view on shaking the nations is. Because we all conclude in the same place when the Lord says, In this place, I will give peace. That meant something to Haggai and the fellow listeners, that they would have peace. They could meet with God through that Old Testament system of sacrifice at that designated place, and God's presence would be there. They would know forgiveness of sins, atoned for by the shed blood of a perfect lamb. Oh, they would do it again because it was insufficient, but they did it in faith, believing that one day God would provide the perfect remedy. It means something to us today to think that Christ actually walked on this earth and filled that temple and said, whoever believes in me will have life and life abundant. You'll have peace with God. And it will mean something for all eternity to know that we are hidden in Christ and can enter into his eternal joy and know peace. And he'll wipe away tears There'll be no more death and no more sorrow. Why? Because his word is, I will give peace. So may our significance be anchored in what God has said. He is with us so that we can accomplish his purpose. You'll be tempted this week to compare. My good good mom as she is, we as good of a church as that one is. Do I provide for my family? Do I make enough money? Do we live as good as others do? And, and every other comparison that fits every one of us in the room. And the answer is, come back to an old story. A funny prophet named Haggai, who talked with a people who actually proved to be quite insecure with their feelings of insignificance. And he didn't say, no, no, you're really good at this. He said, no, God is really faithful. and He can give peace. But that peace only comes when we find our identity in him, his presence, and in his purpose. Heavenly Father, help us to learn from this story of your people who are not too unlike us. And may our significance be anchored in your truth, in your love, in your faithfulness, in your promises to us, and in the significance and the sufficiency of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.